the school is growing. Uh, we have Radius Asia, which is in Taichung, Taiwan. Uh, that is our second campus. And then a third campus coming in Cambodia, Lord willing, in another year. And a fourth campus going to Lucknow, India, with our brother. Some of you may know Harshit Singh. Uh, he is a dear friend, I'm sure, to PJ as well. But uh, we're looking forward to Radius India, hopefully starting up in two to three years. So the hope is that we're, the program is able to bless not only English-speaking churches, but Mandarin-speaking churches and Korean-speaking churches and Indian-speaking uh, churches as well. And so Hindi-speaking churches, I should say. Uh, so that's the goal. And we're able to see that happening more and more as the program grows in different ways. So that's Radius. Uh, it's a very unique program. One of these days, I'm going to sneak down some of your interns and pastors. And I'm working. I was texting with John Lee about that this morning. Uh, before Nina and I went overseas to the Yembi people, we were, uh, like many of the young people in here, we were college students. We met in college uh, through a series of circumstances. Uh, we ended up getting engaged and married as soon as we graduated from college, and we had zero uh, direction as far as missions goes. We were not going to head back into missions. I was raised over on the mission field, but I wasn't heading that direction. I had a degree in accounting, uh, and I found out pretty fast that I was pretty good at it. I eventually rose up the accounting ladder through three years and was the chief financial officer for a Dutch company. I worked in Europe for a couple years. Uh, we were starting to look at houses. Some of you come down to San Diego every once in a while. We were looking at houses in La Jolla. Uh, we were looking at various ways to send our son to a private school, and he was going to go to USC and play football. And we had these dreams and aspirations, and that was, that was our hope. And guys, I, I praise God to this day that our dreams, our passions, our ambitions uh, were overridden by our time in the Word. We never got a missionary call, this nebulous call that we hear about so much. Uh, we never got it. The only call we got was from reading our Bibles and the confirmation of our local church elders. That was the call we had. And so based on that, we walked away from that job that we had, the future, the house in La Jolla, everything else that we were looking at, and we went over to the country of Papua New Guinea. If you're going to take the gospel in 2021, and when we left in 2003, to an unreached people group, you're going to have to learn two languages. You're going to have to learn the language of the country, then you're going to have to learn the language of the people group, the unreached people group within the country. And so we learned the national language of uh, Papua New Guinea. If you find Australia and you go up from Australia, there's this little country. It's cut in half. Half of it's Irian Jaya. Now it's called West Papua. And the right-hand side is Papua New Guinea, the largest island on, second largest island. Greenland is the largest island. And we ended up in Papua New Guinea. And we learned the national language. And then I'll never forget this. The leaders of our organization came to us and they said, uh, you guys are ready to go. Here's a list. And on this list was seven tribes, seven people groups who had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't even make the list unless they've been asking for five consecutive years. They ask for three years and then they stop. They won't make the list. They have to ask for five consecutive. There's one tribe on there called the Tuwadi people that have been asking for 12 years. Think about that for half a second. 12 years. They're not asking for Jesus. They were asking for the little pills that come with the missionaries. So their babies stopped dying. They were asking for someone to move in, and they'd heard about this talk that lands when the missionaries come, and the whole village changes. We don't know what happens, but we want all of that that comes with missionaries. 
And so our team, two other families and ourselves, we looked at the list and we figured the only just thing to do was to go to this tribe that had been asking for 12 years, the Tuati people. And the day came uh, when the airplane, we had this small little uh, mission Cessna 206 came in and uh, it uh, landed and the pilot got out and he says, guys, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is uh, the weather flying today is going to be great. Where you want to go had six inches of rain overnight. The airfield is underwater. You're not going to be going to Tuwadi today. Do you have a second choice? And so we talked about this, and on this list, there was this other tribe that was this dominant, hostile people group that had had very little interaction. They'd been asking for seven years for somebody to come into their people group, and it was called the Yembi Yembi people. And we said, yeah, we'll, we'll go to this place. So I scribbled out a note in the national language, rolled it up, took a water bottle, emptied all the water out as best I could, put the rolled up note inside the water bottle, and we took off, 45-minute plane flight, and we made it over the Yembi village. We could see their village, all the different hamlets and all the different houses. The airplane pilot turned the plane on its side, opened the window, and I threw the water bottle out. Now, remember, there was this little kid who was running to catch the water bottle, and I'm thinking, I'm going to kill the first Yembi I meet. Like, he's just, water bottle's going to hit him in the head. It's all going to be over, and the kid wasn't fast enough. He missed the water bottle, and then he pulls it out, and then we see all these people coming out of the jungle, and they're waving the letter, and we don't know if they could read it or not, and so we kept flying because they had no airfield, and we flew for another 15 minutes, and we landed at the closest airfield, and then we got in a motor canoe, a motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this room and it's got a motor on the back of it and we started motor canoeing and we motor canoed for seven hours and finally we pulled into Yembi Yembi and if the Yembis like you especially today if you're a Christian and you land in Yembi Yembi there's an airfield there now uh, what they do what they did to us the first time that we got there if they are excited about you coming they take a huge hunk of red mud it's a special kind of mud and it doesn't have any gravel in it it's just really silty and they shove it into your face and then they push it all the way down your Adam's apple, then they take diced up flower petals, whip that at your face, and it sticks to the mud. And now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And that, that's what happened to us the first time we came into the tribe. And we stayed there for three days, and we took language samples. We wrote their language down. Uh, we took a bunch of video because our wives weren't with us, and we ate the food. We looked around at potential housing sites, went back out the same way we came in, uh, met with our wives and the leaders of the mission that we were with, and we, decided, and we sent some emails back to our home churches, and we said, we think this is where God is leading us. We see this as an open door, and they said, yeah, we would agree with that. And so we went back in. We told the Yembi we are coming to be your missionaries, and we're we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language. We're going to learn to speak in your language clearly because we have some talk that is so important we don't want to mess it up. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. Their language had never been written down. They didn't have a written alphabet. So we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. Number three, we're going to take this really important book and we're going to translate it into your language. We're going to do a couple pre-books before that. They're going to be about some health and medical things, but this actual book, we're going to translate this entire book into your language. And number four, we're going to teach you what this book has to say. And when we've done these four things someday, we're going to leave. We're not here forever. We're going to stay until we finish those jobs, but we will not leave until we finish those four things. And so I remember the Yembis came up to us and they said, that's great. So excited that you guys are coming, but uh, we want to know if you're going to be like the ones who go and come. 
What they meant was they'd, they'd have tourists, uh, especially European tourists that would fly in on helicopters, land, would trade with them, uh, would trade like bush knives and clothing and things like that, and then they'd get artifacts and then they'd fly out the day of. And they'd had a short-term missions team that had come in and done mimes in one day and presented the gospel and uh, anybody who believed what the mime said got a bar of soap. And so, of course, the whole village went forward and the whole village got saved in one day. Um, <clears throat> that's, a, that's actually a really bad thing. But anyways, uh, they said, are you going to be like those people? And we said, no, we're going to come and we're going we're to build our houses. We're going to raise our kids among you. We're going to be with you. We're going to learn your language. We're going to be part of the fabric as much as we can. They said, okay, if you're really going to do that, what we have in Yembiembi, we have four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. And they looked at me, and I've got these long legs, and I've got a little bit of a crooked nose from playing basketball uh, too much in college. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. And so they, <laughs> they put me in the ostrich clan. I looked at my wife, and she's got blonde hair, and so they're like, oh, she's in the eagle clan. Your, your wife can't be from the same clan. That's a bad thing. And so they put us all in these different clans. And then they started raising us, and we had new fathers, new mothers. We got new names. They didn't believe that our marriage in the cold country Anything outside of Papua New Guinea is called the cold country because Papua New Guinea is warm. It's about 110, 120 every day, 98% humidity. Uh, it's just, it's warm all the time. And so they would call the other countries that they'd heard about uh, the cold country. And they said, we don't believe your marriage was real when you got married in the cold. So we had to get remarried in the tribe. And then uh, they came to us three years into the, or not three years, about three weeks into the process. And they asked us, the men on the team, have you ever killed a boar? In Yembi Yembi, a boy changes into a man when he kills a boar at night with a spear by himself. If not, he's always a boy, and he's not allowed to marry, he's not allowed to have kids, he's not allowed to have any, until he kills a boar at night with a spear by himself. And so one of the guys on the team had killed like a, a pig with a stun gun. He was from Minnesota or something. And I don't know how they kill pigs, but anyways, he, he killed a pig, and he said, I'd done that, and he said, no, no, no. Have you ever killed him with a spear? No, I've never done that. So they started training us, and they took us, and it took us about six months before we got our first pig to where we were actually real men. And the reason we did all of this, the reason that we went on boar hunts, the reason that we got new names, the reason that we became faithful clan members to where we would go to the right weddings, to the right ceremonies. When the ostrich clan daughters get married, I have to be there as one of their brothers, and I have rights and I have responsibilities. So that when the gospel came, it came from an insider. It didn't come from someone who was from the outside parachuting in. And we see this in the life of Jesus Christ. Aren't you, aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't come? He could have come in as a 28-year-old. He could have just appeared on the scene. But he came as a child. He became like the local Jewish people. They could point out, there's his brothers and sisters over there. That's the carpenter's son. They knew who he was. He was an identifiable commodity. He was squeezable. He was human. He ate their food. He knew their language. That when the sun rises over here and it's red, you know that it's going to be windy. Too. He knew everything about Jewish life. And the model that Jesus gives us to become like the people in as many ways as possible, obviously not in other ways that are going to break what we see in Scripture, but to become like those people so that when the gospel came, it came from an insider. It came from somebody that had walked those trails, 
that they'd seen do sago with their own hands, that they'd seen do all these things. And so finally, after two and a half years of learning their language, we told them, we're going to start the things that we promised. And we started the first literacy class and the first people reading for the first time. I tell you what, thrilled my heart to no end to walk through the village at night and hear the literacy students working their way through Luke chapter three, the various passages, getting to hear them in their own language and what it meant for Christianity. Christianity today in Yembe Yembe is known as the thinking man's religion. They're the readers. They're the people who read. And the elders read the best of everybody because if you're not a good reader, you can't get up and you can't teach the congregation. So go practice to the banana trees and then you get better and better because the banana trees won't make fun of you. But so that the word of God comes and it's respected. And then finally we started getting into the translation of the word of God. And then we told them uh, when we were in December of 2007, next moon, we are going to start the talk that we actually came here for. We're going to start teaching the meaning of this book. And we'd gotten ahead. I'd done Genesis and Exodus, had done portions of the Old Testament, and was just starting into the book of Mark. And we were starting to move further into the translation, and we were starting the teaching. And I'll never forget the day that we had the first day of teaching, where we built a teaching house, had open walls. It was a little bit, it was about the same size as this gathering room that we're in. And we had a 1,000 people, roughly, in the tribe of Yembe And everybody's jammed in as close as they can, and it's loud. It's going. And we start teaching about the God who knows all things and where this talk came from, that there were some ones, the profetanos, the ones who God gave his word to them and they wrote it down faithfully and this book is true. We know that this is God's word come from God himself and it's gone through ages and ages and so we're going to teach you about this God because he revealed himself. He actually showed himself to us through what's written down in this book and the Yembis because the Yembis, no man is a blank slate. It's not like you're teaching into a vacuum. Oh, there's this God. They had their gods. They have spirits. They have a belief system. And to make sure that we were always intentionally, here's what your ancestors said, here's the gods you believe in, and here's the God of the book. You choose. Keeping the translation ahead of them. So it wasn't my word. It wasn't our team's word against their ancestors. It was the God of this book. What this book says against their ancestors and against their belief system. And we start teaching through Genesis 1-1. And the God who creates all good things, anything he does is pure and good and right and true. And look at all these incredible foods that he makes. We, the Yembies, so the Yembies have 14 different kinds of bananas. They have seven different kinds of sago. They have all these different kinds of foods. And so one, one time we got up there and we're teaching five days a week, two hours at a shot, and everybody's hanging on the words. This God who is new, who is unlike all other gods. And we flipped over a canoe and we took some foods that they were familiar with and we cut it up into as many small pieces as possible. And then we flew in some new foods that they'd never tasted before. Oranges, apples, things from colder climates that don't grow in the whole lowlands where we're at, slicing them up so a thousand people can have just a taste. Look at all this wondrous variety that God creates. Does God eat food? No. Why did he make so many different kinds of bananas? Why did he make this weird food that you guys have never tasted, but some of you like and some of you don't? He made it because he loves you. He loves me. This is the character of this God, that he cares for human beings. And to see the Yembiembis falling in love with God, Falling in love with this once, who's so unlike their spirits. 
So unlike their gods who are tricksters, who work on the human deception. They'll trick them into thinking various things. And how God creates Eve and he gives him freely to Adam. What an incredible thing. Mind-blowing for the Yemis. That's what this God is like. He's so much different than our gods. And then we get to the chapter that changes the hinge point of human history. Guys, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if you don't understand Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's no way you understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't know what you're being saved from until you understand the implications of Genesis chapter 3. And so we, we got up. We're teaching on the fall of mankind. That's Genesis chapter 3 and how they eat the fruit and they're separated from God permanently. And the Yembis, what we would do is we would teach and then we would act things out because they're concrete learners. They'd never sat in formalized class before. And the Yembis aren't like you guys. You guys know when it's appropriate to uh, clap, when it's appropriate to laugh, all that kind of stuff. They don't know any of that stuff. This is their first time sitting and listening to this type of teaching. And so if the Yembis like what you're saying, even today, like if PJ comes out there uh, and he's teaching if they like what he's saying they'll yell from anywhere keep talking this talk is good to my belly the belly is the seed of their emotions ours is our heart my heart is broken my heart is full my heart is sad ours is heart theirs is their belly if they don't like what you're saying they'll yell from anywhere enough shut your mouth this talk is hurting my ears i'm about to throw this talk up like because it's coming from their belly and so this is happening and as they hear something that you say that they like they will also comment to the guy next to him hey did you hear that that was incredible and i mean there's these little conversations going on and then the old mamas are yelling hey everybody shut up we want to keep hearing this talk and so the thousand people and this is all happening so you know if you're flying and dying really fast and so we're teaching the fall of mankind, and we teach through the implications of the fall. And then the enemy said, no, 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 act it out, act it. And we'd already had this one in the shoot, and we're teaching. And I'm Satan. I've got this black bed sheet on top of my head, and my coworker's wife is Eve. And we're walking around, and we're whispering to each other, talking, talking loud enough for a thousand people to hear. And I'm telling her, Eve, Eve, just eat the fruit. And we tied a piece of fruit to a little tree. And she's reaching out and looking at it. And the Yembis, remember, these are unsaved people. They're yelling, hey! Hey, smart girl, look at your belly. Where do you think that food came from? And I mean, just all sorts of horrific insults that I can't say in a, a church. But uh, they're yelling at her, and she's reaching out to grab the fruit, and a couple of them get up, and they grab her hands, and they pull her hand down, and we have to stop the skit. She's going to eat the I know, but there's more to the story. Because <laughs> they don't see fables and fairy tales. You know what they see? They see their ancestors. And what happens to their ancestors trickles down to them. And my coworker's wife reaches out, grabs the fruit, takes a bite. A thousand people go quiet. We start walking through the ramifications of the fall. From the sweat of your brow, you'll eat. That's kind of one of those things we don't really get in this society. But your women in childbirth, man, when we moved into Yembe before medical, um, certain medical things that we brought with them, my wife was part of that process, about 15 to 20% of the girls died in childbirth. These aren't things that are somehow out there. They're, there's these distant facts. They're real and true. And then the realest one of all, from the dust you came to the dust you will return. What an incredible thing to think about that. In the tropics burying a body, 
Man, I, I pray that many of you in here will allow your kids to be part of funeral services, to see the ramifications of the fall. This is why we bury loved ones, what you guys are gonna do next week, why we talk about death, why Christians talk about death in a different way than unbelievers. But there's a second part to Genesis chapter three where it says there's gonna be one coming. And that's the promise. And we had a tree that was right outside and we ripped a branch off of the tree and we hung the branch up where I was teaching. And the branch throughout the next three months as we kept teaching all the way down to the smaller branches and down to the leaves, the leaves started turning yellow, then they turned brown, then they turned black, then they started falling off. The promise of God that when our ancestor broke out from God, that that would trickle down to us today. That's why we bury people. But there's another promise in Genesis chapter three that someday I'm gonna send someone who has the power to put the branch back in the tree, to make things right between God and man again. That's the promise of Genesis three, that all of this evil, all that was done to separate God and man, there will be one coming someday who can put the branch back in the tree, who can make things right again. And guys, I never would have believed it. We get to the next characters in the divine drama in the human drama, we get to Cain and Abel, and we start teaching on Cain and Abel. And again, this is Yembe Yembe, and so one of the guys stands up and he says, wait, 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 wait. This one that you speak of, Cain, is he the one? I said, what do you mean? And I said, say it louder, because I'm thinking where he's going. He goes, this one, Cain, is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? No, he's not the one. And guys, every Old Testament character that we introduced, whether that was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, someone got up or came up and in the crowd asked, is he the one? Is he the one who's going to make things right between God and man again? Who's going to put the branch back in the tree so that things are like they were before? What an incredible picture. The whole Old Testament pointing to the coming of the one. And one of the privileges of my life was when we finally got to the New Testament. Excuse me. <coughs> we got to the New Testament in John chapter 1. And John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sees Jesus walking alongside the River Jordan. And we've got about seven guys at that point that stand up and say, wait, 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 wait. Stop the talk. Stop the talk. This one that John was talking about, is he the one? Privilege of my life to say, he's the one, guys. He is the one. And to see the Yembies, oh, man, stop the talk of John who dunks in water. We want to hear about this one. We want to hear about the one who's coming. <clears throat> Why are we wasting our time on this other guy? No, 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 we're building a house. Remember, we put the posts in, then we put the floor, then we put the walls. And to see the Yembies fall in love with this Jesus who was so unlike their leaders, who was so unlike the government leaders. How Jesus, Jesus didn't hang out with the powers that be. Jesus didn't hang out with the government officials who fly in every four years and bribe everybody to vote for them. And then they never do anything for the people and then they fly back out in the helicopter and they come in and they shower everyone with gifts. Jesus didn't hang with those guys. Jesus didn't hang with all the different pastors that hang out in the big towns but never make it out to the faraway places. Jesus hung out with people like the Yembe Yembes. Jesus, they intuitively had this sense that if he was there, he would make it to their neck of the woods. Because Jesus was the one who touched lepers. Jesus was the one who makes paste with his spit and dirt and he rubs it in people's eyes. You know what you have to do? You know, have you ever seen people's eyes who are blind? 
They're like full of like different things like pus and dirty. And Jesus touches people like that. Jesus hangs out with the the poor, the marginalized, the guys who when they go to town, they feel like they are second class citizens because they are. He hangs out with people like the Yembies. And to see the Yembies fall in love with this guy before they even knew that he would die for their sins. And we start walking them through, and I don't have time to get into the day we presented the death, burial, and resurrection. Seven hours of teaching to walk through the different ways that our Lord and Savior gave himself to make us right with God again. And guys, at the end of that day, by God's good grace, we had somewhere between 40 to 50 people, and we were doing interviews for another three months. What did you understand from that teaching? 40 to 50 people who understood who Jesus Christ was, that he had died for their sins, that he had made a way for God to be made right with man again. He was the one. Our guys don't have a word for savior. They call Jesus the bridge man, the one who takes us from Satan's side to God's side. There's a bridge man when we're traveling on long expeditions because we have these really nasty rivers where to get across, you have to cross these rickety little bridges. And the old people, the weak people, the too young to walk across have to have somebody who's stronger than they are, who will hold their hands, pin them down to their chest, and will walk across the bridge with them on their back. That's the bridge man who carried us, nothing we could do to the other side so that we could be part of God's clan, bigger than the ostrich clan, bigger than the eagle clan, the clan that supersedes all other clans. And to see that clan when we started teaching the book of Acts and as we started to gather, and we stayed eight more years with the MBMB people, uh, teaching them through, gathering them, starting to disciple the elders, the deacons, and bringing them to an understanding of what it meant to be a church leader, them coming up and teaching for the first time. Oh, man, those were some hairy days. Um, but just getting the church as the church continued to grow and saw their allegiance as first and foremost to the clan of the crossers, the ones who had crossed over my allegiance to the ostrich clan, to the black cockatoos. What a privilege that was, eight years. And so in 2016, the church was strong enough at that point. Uh, Nina and I came back to the United States. I have been going back there every year to check on the church, and I will do it till I can't get on that plane physically anymore. Uh, this year, because of COVID, I wasn't able to make it back, but in three months, I'll be going back again for my sixth visit to just check on the church and to see how they're doing. Uh, God in his uh, providence only desired for Nina and I to have one child, but we like to say we have two children. We have our son, Bo, who is at Cal Baptist, and we have the Yembiembi Church, which is buried in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, but by God's good grace is growing, and they're going out to see other churches and to help them this Christmas for the first time. So we're pretty excited about that. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. All of that as background. My apologies Matthew 28, there are five different instances in Scripture of what we call the Great Commission. When Jesus was getting ready to go back to his home, to heaven, to take up his place at the right hand of God, he gave commissioning. He gave a orders. He gave his marching orders. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert have a great book called What is the Mission of the Church? If there's two books that I would recommend as far as missions goes, it would be What is the Mission of the Church? And then number two, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Those two books are phenomenal if you are wanting to understand 
what is the Great Commission and why do we go to unreached people groups or unreached language groups more specifically? So the mission of the church, the Great Commission, is most clearly seen in these five passages. Four of them are separate instances. They're not the same retelling of the same thing. Uh, the passage Luke 24, 47 and John 20, 21, they're the same instance. But Mark 16, 15 is a different situation. Matthew 28, 18, what we're going to be getting into. That's on the mountain outside of Galilee. Acts 1-8 is the Mount of Olives. And so we know these are separate instances. They're not the same place. Uh, they're different instances of Jesus telling his followers, this is what you are to be about. Yes, we are to be a witness and a light in San Diego, in LA, in California, wherever we find our local gathering. But the church has a mission. And that mission goes beyond our borders. It goes beyond our language. It goes beyond our culture. And it continues to press out. And this is most clearly seen in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So let's read this passage. Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them to go. And when he saw them, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I want to take away four points from this passage, four points that I just want to touch on that I think are relevant and applicable for our day. Number one, uh, that we are men and women under authority. We are men and women under authority. This passage, as Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What that means is if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christ follower, you're no longer your own master. You're, you have a master, you have a king, you have someone who has given direction to your life. You don't get to call the shots in your life. Paul, as you read through many of the epistles, is fond of using one particular occupation to kind of represent this. There's one particular occupation, even in our day and age, yesterday was the Army-Navy game. If you guys watched the Army-Navy game on CBS, there, it was this incredible pageantry, but at the end, the formality of having the leaders and the commanders stand up and the plebes and the ones who are going to West Point, the ones who are going to Annapolis, and the way that they reacted to that. Paul likes to use the imagery of a soldier. Soldiers have a commander. They have someone who gives them orders. There are people, men and women, under authority. And if you call yourself a Christian, you're a man and woman under authority. You don't get to decide where you want to go, what you want to do, what you like. You have a commander that's given that to you. One of the things that... <coughs> excuse me. One of the things that... I'm always cracking up at I speak at these different colleges and I'll have some zealous young college student come up to me afterwards and usually be like, man, that's so cool that you're into hunting and you're into the outdoors and you're kind of like an outdoorsy guy and they'll have some question that revolves around like REI or something like that. And, it, and I don't have the heart usually to tell them that Nina and I, even before we left for the mission field, we're not outdoorsy people. Like we don't, we don't go camping like Yosemite, Half Dome, all that stuff. That's not us. We like 
the city. We like smog. We like sushi. We, we like that. Like, I'm, I'm a huge Lakers guy. I'm a huge Padres guy. I'm not sure if the Padres fly here, but anyways, the Padres are my jam. Um, we used to like the Chargers, not so much anymore. Uh, but, like, we're city people. When did it start becoming about what you're into, what you like to do, what your passions are? That's the newest one for a lot of young people. What are you passionate about? What is your king passionate about? Because if you're a person under authority, your passions are secondary and subservient to your king. It worries me how much we start to look at our own giftings, our own talents. You guys know my, my background. You know how much of my background as a CFO, chief financial officer, was transferable to living in the jungle? Not much. Not much at all. But when did it become about what your gifting is? What you're good at? It's about what your king is into. And then point number two, the glory of God among all nations. As it says in the passage, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this passage in the Greek, I'm not a big guy who likes to get into the whole Greek root of things, but this passage, it's, the actual words are the pontata ethne. All nations is the pontata, the ethne. That's the word that we get ethnicities from. All the ethnic peoples of the world, you're to go to all of those. When he says nations, it's not meant to be like Spain, Mexico, United States, Philippines. It's to the ethnic groups, not the nations that we know them like political nation states today. And the mark, the defining mark, I love how PJ's been highlighting this recently, the defining mark of an ethnicity, you know what it is? Head and shoulders above all others? Language. Language. What is the language of that people group? And Jesus' marching orders, the mission of the church, you go to all the ethnes. You go to all the peoples, all the languages. That's why we exist as a church. Yes, while we're here in Bellflower. Yes, at my church, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church in San Diego, California. Man, I better be about Denny and Jeffy Harper, my neighbors across the street, and getting them to church and giving them the gospel on a regular basis. And Dan and Eileen and how I'm going to talk to them through their kids. And we're going to hire their kids to look after our dog because we want to be pouring into that family. And maybe because of that, they'll come to church with us. I'm about that. But that's not the mission of the church. That's me being a faithful Christian. The mission of the church is that we go to those various people groups around the world. We get there to where there is a light that exists there someday by God's good grace. We go to those ethnic people groups. I remember when I was translating the book of Romans, so I was in charge. We wanted the Pauline epistles all to have one kind of voice. So my job on the team was to translate all the Pauline epistles. I ended up doing all the gospels except for the gospel of Mark and a few other books, some Old Testament books. But the Pauline epistles were really the ones that I focused most of my efforts on. Uh, my dear wife was a lot of my content checker and she became expert at looking through concordances and all sorts of different helps. We were a great team. She balanced me out in that. But I remember when I was translating the book of Romans, and I'm going through Romans chapter 4, and there was one particular passage that I ran up against that I was having a hard time with. And by that time, we had believers. And one of the believers that was helping me translate the book of Romans, his name was Tarangawi. 
and Tarangawi uh, was very adamant that, okay, we're only going to be translating from the actual words of God into our talk. And so I'm getting stuck on this particular passage in Romans 4, and I pull out another version. I pull out a study Bible, another version, uh, that I was like, maybe this will help me kind of think this through and how I'm explaining this to Tarangawi. And Tarangawi goes, wait, wait, wait. What's this other book that you've pulled out? I thought we were only translating from the word of God. What's this other book that you just, you're starting to read from? I said, Tarangawi, this, this is another version in my language. It's, it's somebody else did another translation in our language. Tarangawi goes, what? How many versions do you have in your language? <laughs> and I'm, this, it's starting to dawn on me, like the wheels are churning and they're turning faster. And I'm starting to get a little bit embarrassed. And I, I'll be honest with you guys, I, I just, I didn't have the heart and I, I lied. I said, Tarangawi, we've got about seven to 10 versions in our language. And Tarangawi does what Yembiembis do when they just, this is unfathomable. Like we're breaking. It took us nine years to finish the Pauline epistles. We're spending hours. I'm getting up at four in the morning. Tarangawi's reading this stuff by firelight. This took us a huge chunk of our eyeballs and our mind and everything to get these things. And Tarangawi goes, this is what Yembis do when they can't, they can't fathom something. So you have, you have seven versions in your language? Guys, I came back to the U.S. after that time, five years, and I went to my local Christian bookstore, and I found out that there's over 800 versions in the English language. You add the study Bibles, you're up in the thousands. Does God love the English-speaking world so much more than the rest of the world? Or have we missed some critical component that somehow... Because Sarangawi is thinking about all of the different places around that we can name that would kill to have the book of Romans in their language. Does God love the English-speaking world that much? Have we missed this key component that there's always this outward emphasis on the gospel moving forward. A Christian who does not recognize the good and healthy pressure of moving onward and outward to these groups, those languages, is missing a critical component to what the original audience understood. A lot of people don't realize this, that the disciples who would become the apostles, remember there's 13 apostles that we recognize, 13 apostles, you got 12 at the beginning, then Judas knocks himself out, then Matthias takes his place, then you've got Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who's one born out of time, he kind of wasn't there when Jesus was there, he's, he's this oddball is what he calls himself, but you got these 13 apostles, of the 13 apostles, only one of them died in his home country, James. We have recorded. Every one of the other ones, church historians will tell us, of the 13, 12 of them died in foreign lands. Syria, India, Rome, all of these different countries. 12 of, what did they know? What did they understand? What pushed them to where they never made it back home again? As they're going along, they're teaching, they're planting churches, they kept going. And they died in foreign lands because there was this original understanding that we're always to be moving out. We're to be going to the places that still don't have the gospel. And then point number three, the primacy of the local church. It says here, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then verse 20 always seems to be cut off, at least on Twitter, which I really uh, uh, dismays me terribly. Verse 20 says, and teaching them. 
You're not just making disciples of them. You're teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the Great Commission. Why do we say the Great Commission is planting churches and not just making disciples? Because churches are commanded to baptize new believers. Churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Churches regularly gather. Churches are commanded to teach the word of God. Churches raise up disciple and confirm new elders and deacons. This is the work of the local church. So if you take the gospel to Albania and you present the gospel to someone, and they get it, but you don't plant a church. If you don't see them into a healthy church, we've fallen short of the goal of the Great Commission. The goal of the Great Commission, the reason that Paul can say, if you guys read chapter 15, read Romans chapter 15, it's got one of the clearest expositions of why Paul saw the church as the end goal of the Great Commission. He says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, modern day Albania, there's no more work for me to do there. He says this in Romans chapter 15. And modern churches, church historians will tell us that less than 3% of the entire population even got to hear Paul's message. And Paul says, it's reached. Why? Because there's a church in Jerusalem. There's a church in Philippi. There's a church in Ephesus. There's a church in Rome. The church was the measuring stick for Paul. Has the gospel gone there or not? If there's a church there, then for Paul, the pioneer missionary, not everybody, Titus and Timothy, go to Ephesus, go to Crete, strengthen that church, build it up. But for Paul, the pioneer missionary, we go where there is no church. That's the measuring stick of the Great Commission. And here's the other half of it that is so often not mentioned. The goal of the Great Commission is the local church, but the means of the Great Commission is the local church. You want to be part of the Great Commission, brothers and sisters, there's maybe 5% of you in this room, maybe 10% of you that can go to an unreached people group. But the faithfulness of being a good local church member, that's how you effectively participate in the Great Commission. Be a faithful local church member. Be part of this local church. Be regular. Be one of those who loves the local church. One of the things that so dismays me in this day and age is I hear from a lot of young people, I love Jesus, but I'm a little bit uh, hesitant on the local church. Not possible. Not possible. If you love Jesus, you must love his bride. If you don't love his bride, how much do you truly love him? Warts and all, yeah, we've got the old people. Yeah, we've got the young people. Yeah, we've got some crazy people in there. Yeah, we got Democrats. Yeah, we got Republicans. Yeah, we've got a little bit more conservative. Yeah, we got a little more. That's the local church. And if you don't love that mechanism, if you're not sent out by the local church, the rise in Lone Ranger missionaries, well, I'm into missions and my church isn't really there, then don't go. Don't go as an individual. You go sent out from the local church. The vetting mechanism, how you get a missionary call, do your elders see the same thing? Do they see what you're seeing in scripture? That's the missionary call. Don't wait for some bolt of lightning. Don't wait to see Papua New Guinea in the clouds. You'll be waiting until you die. But you present to your local church, guys, I see this in the scriptures and I feel this in my heart. Do you see the same thing? Love the local church with her warts and all because if you don't love the local church, how will you plant one when you get overseas? How will you know what you're planting? How will you know what it looks like? What are the measures of health? 
The only way that I knew the MBMB church was close was because I went through it in Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church. If you know your local church here, then you've got the effective measuring stick for overseas. But this dichotomy of, I want to be involved in missions, but I don't love the local church. No such thing in history and in scripture. There is no such thing to love the local church, to see the primacy of it in our day and age. And then finally from this passage, this task is measured in eternity. This task is measured in eternity. I love the close of the Great Commission, the close of the book of Matthew. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Missionaries and church members, remember this is a God-sized task. This is not a human task. This will not be accomplished because you are brilliant, because you graduated from UCLA, because you have a great banking background, because you're quick, because you scored 1,400 on the SATs. This is a God-sized task. And to be honest, this task is front-loaded in pain. The pain of missions is at the front end. One of the most difficult memories that I have, the, the, probably the series of difficult memories that I have is at LAX. My local church coming up there to say goodbye. My family members saying about it. I've shed more tears at LAX than I have in any other place in the world. To say goodbye to family. Man, to constantly be reciting to myself, Luke 18, 28. And those who have left home and wives and parents and children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not fail to receive many times as much in this age and the age to come. That's the promise. Father, if I'm leaving these things behind, if I'm leaving my home, if I'm leaving this job, this incredible job, if I'm leaving my family, I'm seeing my father, my earthly father crying right now. If I'm leaving, you're promising me that this is going to be worth it. Not only in the age to come, but in this age. You're going to make this worth it. But you only get there if you measure this job in eternal ways. You don't get it by measuring it. Well, the 401k is a little bit weak. Well, we're going to land at a place that has spicy food. Well, the language is... This is an eternal-sized job. And members from Bethany Baptist Church, those of you that are raising your sons and daughters here, raise them with the idea in mind that this is eternally worth it. It will not be worth it if you measure it in the earth's terms. It will never be worth it if you measure sending your son and daughter off to the country of India for the next 15 to 30 years. If church planning is the goal, it won't be done in weekends. It won't be done on short-term trips. It's going to take 15 to 20 years on average to see a church planted that will outlive every one of us in this room. John Payton, one of the famous missionaries of yesteryear, was rebuking one of the churches from his home back in Scotland because they used to sing a famous song. And it went something like this, send our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And he says, everybody likes to sing that song as long as it's somebody else's sons and daughters that are going. But if it's our own sons and daughters, yeah, we can find them an internship here and they can, they can be involved there. Will we raise our sons and daughters with the eternal measuring stick rather than the temporal? I'm heartened when I read of the recounting of Adoniram Judson's wife, Nancy Judson, and her friend Sarah and how their church sent them off. And this is at the beginning of maybe one of the best missionary biographies out there, To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. Listen to how their church 
viewed what they were doing as they sent off their two daughters and how they viewed them going, knowing that they probably would never see them again. And one of them, they never did. Nancy made it back one time and then she died. She ended up dying in Burma. It says this, the same day the two girls, this is their send-off day, the same day the two girls attended a great meeting of the church in Haverhill. The church was jammed to the rafters with onlookers. Some were merely curious to see the first American foreign missionaries in person. But to most, the occasion was a heart-wrenching farewell to two girls that they had seen grow up almost as members of their own family. The pastor, Parson Allen, delivered the sermon. The good old minister had known the two since their infancy, many times visiting the Hasseltine Dance Hall. He had seen them whirling around, flushed and happy, enjoying themselves without a thought of what life would bring. And he spoke to them before the packed throng as if he were their loving father. My dear children, he told them, you are now engaged in the best of causes. It is the cause for which Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and suffered and died. You literally forsake father and mother, brothers and sisters, for the sake of Christ and the promotion of his kingdom. He had words for the girls' parents and the congregation as well. But at the end of his discourse, he turned again to Nancy and Harriet, and he concluded in a voice nearly breaking. To the care of the great head of the church, I now commit you. To his grave, I also resign you. May he gather us as one someday, and may you return and come to Zion with a song and with shouts of everlasting glory. I pray that when this body sends out its first members, when you send out additional members, your own sons and daughters, measure it in eternity. Because if you measure it in earthly terms, it will never be worth it. If you raise your sons and daughters and they end up going overseas, it's never worth it if this is the end. But if you raise them in mind with eternity and perspective, it's worth it. Someday we'll all gather in Zion. Someday they'll come. What glory will be afforded to Bethany Baptist Church through the sons and daughters raised up in this congregation and sent out through the brothers and sisters here but only if we see it with eternity in mind. Last passage, and we'll close with this. Turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Paul is speaking here of the cost of missions. And this is a famous missionary passage. We're touching on two very famous passages as far as missions goes. Paul in Romans chapter one explains very clearly that although Men knew God, they turned their back on him, they've fallen short of the glory of God, and the consequences for all, is that all men are condemned. We see the evidence of God all around us, the law is written on our hearts, and yet we're by nature bent away from God, inclined always to follow our own ways, and yet this knowledge is inescapable, part of who we intrinsically are. I remember when we were teaching the Yembis, because Yembis, one of their questions before they became believers was, what happened to our ancestors? And then we taught the book of Romans. After we taught Romans chapter 1, and they had recounted the stories of their own ancestors who had cannibalized the surrounding tribes around them, and they, this, this one story that's famous within the YMBMB world, that as they were cannibalizing this one particular incident, which I won't get into today, and they were all sitting around eating, and they know how they had killed this guy. They were all eating, and they had tears in their eyes. Where did those tears come from? because they knew what they were doing was wrong. And when we told this story in conjunction with Romans chapter one, yes, of course. There's no question in the MB mind where our ancestors have gone. We knew this. 
This is clear as day because of our own history and because of what we see in Romans chapter 1. And Paul gets at this in Romans 10 again. He presses into this whole area of how men can be made right with God again. He says this in Romans 10 verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is a series of rhetorical questions. Those of you guys that haven't been in high school English, rhetorical questions are questions that are asked that everybody knows the answer to. We all know the answer. If someone doesn't hear the gospel, there's no way they can understand who God is. And if someone doesn't have the gospel preached to them, there's no way that they can be made right with God again. Yes, there are such things as mimes and Jesus films and dreams and things like that, but they never lead someone to Christ. They lead to someone who can tell them about Christ. Be careful, Bethany Baptist Church, in putting your hope in things that are other than preaching the gospel. We preach the word of God. Faithful ministers, those who are being sent out from your own body, preach the word of God. Don't put that debt onto the back of an interpreter. Don't put that onto the back of something that you don't know how it will be interpreted. We see clearly from this passage, unless the gospel is preached, unless it's heard, unless it's understood and believed, there's no way for people to be made right with God. And then Paul has this interesting part, the thrust of this, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. John Piper has this famous saying. John Piper says, if you believe this book to be true, if, you th if you're a Christian and you believe the words of this book are inspired and authoritative and tell me how to live my life, you have three responses in terms of missions. One, to be a goer. And that's a few of you in this room. A few of you are of the age that you could get somewhere. You could preach the gospel. You could plant a church, gather those disciples, teach and grow them. But the majority of, in you, the majority of you here are by the age, just by the nature of where you're at in the life stage, you're going to be senders. So John Piper likes to say there's goers, there's senders, and then there's a third category called the disobeyers. There's no fourth category. There's goers. There's senders, and there's disobeyers. There's not a fourth category. So brothers, my encouragement to you from this passage, that unless your goers are sent well, they won't last. There's an entire course that we put our missionaries through, and then we put their pastoral staff through down at Radius, how to be a good sender. I remember there's a famous missionary called William Carey, the first missionary from the English-speaking world to India. And William Carey got together with his three buddies and they were describing what they were attempting to do as the first guy to head over to there. And they described it as someone going down a deep, dark well. And Carey had this famous, famous statement. And he says, I'll go down the well if you'll hold the rope. The missionaries are the one going down the rope. Those are the goers. But there's a whole army that Lord willing is at the top of the rope and you're holding that rope and you dare not let that rope go because that's your member. That's from your body. And I believe someday the Lord Jesus will come back and he'll ask the guys who went down the rope, show me your hands. 
Show me your hands. Show me what it costs you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the guys at the top of the rope, I think he'll ask for their hands as well. What did it cost you? What did it cost you to send your own members? My encouragement to senders, drive older cars. Live in smaller houses. Have skinnier 401ks. For the sake of your fellow church members, be a part of that. Be a faithful letter writer. Be someone who sends good care packages. Man, I praised God when we were in the middle of the jungle. You know what was my favorite thing? Every three months or so, our church would send us these, they'd call them care packages, and they had beef jerky in there, and occasionally, they'd have tapatio in there. I lived off of tapatio. Like, I'm eating sago and bananas for, like, years on end, but if I can put tapatio on there, I can survive, and they'd send me, like, the Costco size of tapatio, and we couldn't get good AA and AAA batteries, and batteries are heavy, but they paid the price, and they sent good good double-A batteries over there. And we got triple-A and these things that our senders sent us. I praise God for Jack and Mary Alice Griffin, for Marv and Shirley Friedman, all gone, all graduated to glory now. They no longer, their bodies are resting in the soil, their spirits are with God. We'll meet them someday. They were our senders. And what Jack and Mary Alice did and how Dave Johnson, who owns a travel agency, used to own a travel agency, he's in heaven now, And he would use that travel agency to help get us to the field so we had discounted tickets. To be faithful senders. If you can't be a goer, be a faithful sender. And it starts with being a faithful church member. And then after you're a faithful church member, how do we get involved? How do we raise up the young people with this vision? How do we give them good biographies so they're reading things? that will engender this idea that it's worth it for me to give up that scholarship, to possibly not get my master's at UCLA, and to keep going to the nations. My church will stand behind me in that decision. My church will be with me all the way there. You know one of the greatest privileges of my life, when we finished the translation of the scriptures in Yembe Yembe, the Yembe's, I, man, I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, yeah, we're gonna fly it in and we're gonna hand it out and everybody had to pay the equivalent of 60 cents just so that it wasn't free. People that get free things treat it like they're free. But 60 cents, you had to, to buy a, a copy. And Yembe said, what are you doing? What we're gonna do is this. You're gonna call back to the Mama Church, to Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church and our coworkers who are from Denton Bible, You're going to call back to those, and they're going to send their elders. And the mama church, their elders are going to hand us that because we came from that church. And that was what happened. Then our elders flew all the way over to Papua New Guinea, and we had this huge celebration, and they killed a bunch of pigs, and we had villages from miles around that came in. And the elders from Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church got to stand there and got to hand to the elders of the Yembe Church the gift of what it meant. Guys, some of you will have the privilege of raising sons and daughters. Some of you in this room may have the privilege of being goers. Everyone who stays has the privilege of being sender. But man, don't be a disobeyer. You're involved in one of those categories. You're one of those two things. I enclose today. I'll tell you this story and we'll wrap up. So when we were, we presented the gospel to the Yembies, uh, we finally had those 45 to 50 that we believe were saved, how those 45 to 50 lived, how they died, uh, became the seed of the church in Yembe Yembe. And today, over half of the village uh, are part of the church there and they're gathering. They gathered yesterday because, or they're gathering, they're one day ahead of us. Anyways, they gathered yesterday. Uh, And that church is growing and it's multiplying. But two weeks after we had presented the gospel, uh, the Yembe's came up to our house. And so our house was built on these poles, these huge 
posts and it was about eight feet in the air. And so when they needed us at night, they'd helped us build the house and our house had a bark, bark walls and it had a uh, plywood floor. And so they'd take this really long pole because they knew exactly where we slept because they helped build our house. And they'd take this pole and they'd hit the bottom of the floor. And I mean, you, 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 it felt like Jesus was coming back. Like you just you'd wake up and it was so loud. And so sure enough, two o'clock in the morning, this is two weeks after uh, we presented the gospel, Wah, wah, bottom of the floor, and I'm, I'm waking up out of a dead sleep. And so I go to the window, yell outside, who is it? Who is it? And sure enough, it's the tippy, typical Yumby response. It's me, it's me. <laughs> I know it's you. What's your name? And he'd say, no, no, it's me, your tribal father. And so this is one of the chiefs of the village, one of the guys that we think got saved. And so I go outside, and it's rude in Yemby Yemby to shine your flashlight on people's faces. That's just really rude. It ruins their night vision. So you shine it on their feet. And everybody in the, everybody in the tribe can recognize each other based off of their feet. A thousand people. And they can recognize everybody. Of course, they can recognize me. My feet are pretty obvious. But... Um, <laughs> I'm shining it on their feet. I have no idea who it is. And so I'm working my way up, and I shine it on their kneecaps, and then finally get to, like, their belly button, and I recognize those shorts, and I recognize that scar, and I, oh, my goodness. And so there's seven guys there, and there's seven people that have made professions of faith, and eventually we find out they were converts. Uh, but they were up there that night. And my tribal father, who's the leader of the group, says, eldest white son, that's what he calls me. We don't call each other by our names. I'm his only white son, but anyways, he goes... <laughs> Eldest white son, uh, <clears throat> we want to know when we're going. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, if the talk of the book is true, then our sister village, Changriman, our sister village, Menswat, they don't have this talk yet. They're going to the place of fire, right? Yeah, that's true. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or will it be the next day? Two weeks old in the faith. And the first impulse was, when are we going to those places that still haven't heard? Guys, when we came back to the United States in 2016, I had one church, and uh, a couple years ago, I'd have wealthy businessmen who offered to pay to fly the Yembiembi elders and their wives to the United States for a missions conference. And there's no way in the world I would ever do that for two reasons. Number one, when they pop up out of LAX, like it would just blow their world. Like it would just Costco, the riding on an airliner, it would just, it would wreck them. But the reason number two is I told the wealthy businessman, I said, brother, you, you don't know what you're asking. Because remember the Yembies, the Yembies who yell out, hey, I don't like this talk. I'm about to throw it up. To this day, when we have pastoral interns in training, we don't call them interns. They're called elders in training or deacons in training. Those are our two tracks. When we have the elders in training get up, if they start to give a message and it starts to divert, the mamas in the church will start yelling from the back, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning. <laughs> Poor kid is sweating. He's dying. <laughs> This is what happens today in Yembe Yembe. If you get up, if I get up, they will still yell out, the canoe's turning if it's not rooted in scripture. If you get one of the Yembe's up at a missions conference, you know what he'd probably say? He'd say something to the effect of, how long have you had this talk? How long have you known about this? How long have you had this book? When are you going? When are you going? Brothers and sisters, like I said, some of you are meant to be goers. Some of you are meant to be senders, but we're meant to be a part of this. This is the mission that God has given the church. This is what we are about. And I pray in 20, 30 years, the legacy of Bethany Baptist Church 
And what you do with the days that God has given you, the resources that God has given you, the sons and daughters that God has given you. Then I was praising God in the back, hearing all the different sounds. I walked in on the marriage panel, and there's just kids flying everywhere, man, doing laps and hucking bottles and doing all sorts of stuff. What an incredible legacy. Raise up sons and daughters. Raise up your young people. Raise up your congregation to think in terms of eternity to take the gospel where it's never been before. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent your son from the best home, the best family, the best living conditions to come down and to become human, to live like us, to eat our food, to learn our language, to become like us in every way except for sin. And Father, what that did to bring us back into unity with you. Father, we praise you with everything we have that we are sons and daughters now. We are brought back into right relationships. We are part of the family of God. May we always be awestruck at that privilege. May we live lives in such a way that we are temporal human beings. May we measure ourselves in terms of eternity. Father, raise up fathers and mothers sons and daughters that are courageous, uncommonly courageous for 2021, willing to lay aside dreams, ambitions, scholarships, jobs for the sake of your glory among language groups that have never heard. May you receive all the glory from this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.